Well, we'll be in Psalm 59 this evening, but in order to set the context, we're going to read a passage from 1 Samuel in chapter 19, verse 11 through 17. We'll set the occasion and just set it in our minds what David was going through when he writes these words. And David had uh, been given Saul's daughter Michael in marriage, and he had to go through what I would consider an extraordinary feat to be able to win her hand in marriage. And Saul quickly turns on David after he had sworn not to do so, and he sends assassins to kill him. And so that's our context, and this is, this is what we read in 1 Samuel 19 in verse 11. All the way through verse 17, Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him, that he might kill him in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, told him, If you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michael let David down through the window, and he fled away and escaped. Michael took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with the clothes. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, He's sick. Then Saul sent the messengers to see David, saying, Bring him up to me in the bed, that I may kill him. And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed with the pillow of goat's hair at its head. Saul said to Michael, Why have you deceived me thus, and let my enemy go, so that he has escaped? And Michael answered Saul, he said to me, let me go, why should I kill you? Fascinating story, full of intrigue and intensity that you would find in some sort of almost action film. David is being pursued, and they put up a dummy in the bed so he can get away, and he escapes. And then his wife is there covering for him. Great plot, but it was also the reality of his life. That was the life that he lived where he was under constant threat of his life. Now, these were assassins. They wanted to kill him. They were not there uh, to play games. And so David is truly um, in a in perilous situation where people want to kill him and are trying and actively trying to kill him. And you even see that eventually his own wife is not all that honest with him. And so this is the circumstances in which we find him pinning these words in Psalm 59. So let us hear this. In Psalm 59 and verse 1, Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who work evil, and save me from bloodthirsty men. For behold, they lie in wait for my life, fierce men to stir up strife against me. For no transgression or sin of mine, O Lord, for no fault of mine, they run and make ready. Awake, come to meet me and see. You, Lord, God of hosts, are God of Israel. Rouse yourself to punish all the nations. Spare none of those who treacherously plot evil. 
Each evening they come back, howling like dogs and prowling about the city. There they are, bellowing with their mouths, with swords in their lips. For who, they think, will hear us? But you, O Lord, laugh at them. You hold all the nations in derision. O my strength, I will watch for you. For you, O God, are my fortress. My God in his steadfast love will meet me. God will look in triumphant on my enemies. Kill them not, lest my people forget. Make them totter by your power and bring them down, O Lord, our shield. For the sin of their mouths, the words of their lips, let them be trapped in their pride. For the cursing and lies that they utter, consume them in wrath. Consume them till they are no more, that they may know that God rules over Jacob to the ends of the earth. Each evening they come back howling like dogs, prowling about the city. They wander about for food and growl if they do not get their fill. But I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. For you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. So my strength, I will sing praises to you. For you, O God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. This is the word of God. I don't know if you can relate to this where it seems like the world's crashing in around you, but you find a certain comfort when you're in the assembly of the saints and able to praise the Lord despite all that's going on around you. We certainly see that in David. I don't know if it's ever happened where you have been the source of people's gossip or words that have come out strongly against you. Or if you've heard chatter um, in regards to you that's untrue, and you're the innocent party in such a situation. Well, if so, this is a psalm for you to reflect upon. Because really, this is the, the world we live in. This is the, the, the reality. This is what we experience in our lives. I've never had assassins come after me. I'm not that important, but I certainly have understood and felt the sharp sword of a tongue. And this is the world we live in. This is what we experience in our lives. And so this is a psalm for us that can encourage us. And we can take David's example in many ways, but there's even a greater example before us in this I want you to notice how the psalm is divided up. It begins with a prayer for deliverance in the first five verses. In fact, there's a double repetition of the word deliver that you see there. And so the first five verses are a prayer for deliverance. Then verses 6 through 15, we see a prayer for destruction. Where David, as he so often does, is praying for the destruction of his enemies. And then finally, we see a prayer of praise in the final two verses of this psalm. And so we look at this prayer for deliverance, 
Again, you see the double um, repetition there of deliver me from my enemies. And then in verse 2, deliver me from those who work evil. And and he says of his enemies in verse 1. And then in verse 2, he moves into those that work evil. And he says bloodthirsty men. He calls them bloodthirsty men. We shouldn't read too much into the differences there of his enemies and those that work evil and those that are bloodthirsty because they're one in the same group that are after him. And in the context, there is a certain bloodthirst that exists. There might not be a bloodthirst in those that were sent, but there's certainly a bloodthirst within Saul. Saul is consumed, when you read 1 Samuel, with killing David. He's a madman after David. And these assassins are just simply doing what they're called to do. And then to bring them, bring David back to Saul, Saul has a taste for blood. And so David is asking not only that the Lord would deliver, but that the Lord would protect him from those who do this. He says to save him, to deliver him, to protect him. And then he moves in to state the reason why in this petition that he should be saved. He says in verse 3, For behold, they lie in wait for my life. Fierce men stir up strife against me for no transgression or sin of mine, O Lord. So he's stating his innocence. He says, they want to kill me, but not for a sin of my own. They want to kill me, uh, but not for something that I have actually done. He calls upon the covenant name of God. He says, O Lord, O Yahweh, I've done nothing wrong. That's a prayer that David is able to pray. But when others have come after me, I've never been innocent. I'm going to guess if you were honest, nor have you been. Or we can say we're always 100% innocent. Well, David says this. In this situation, because actually he was loyal to Saul, and he's experienced what we would say is injustice. He says, they come after me for no fault of mine. They run, and they make ready. Ready to do what? To kill him. And so what does David do here? Is David prays for justice. In verse 5, he says, you, Lord, God of hosts... Our God of Israel, rouse yourself to punish all the nations. Spare none of those who treacherously plot evil. That's an interesting phrase because he's being attacked by a specific group. But then here he moves into saying, punish all the nations. Go after the nations that would work iniquity. Go after those nations that practice injustice. And he's calling for God to destroy and punish, bring his wrath upon the nations. But then he qualifies this by saying, spare none of those who treacherously plot evil. That's a hard thing to pray because... I'm sure in our experience, we've known some people that plot evil, that we care about. But notice, what his, this is without exception. Punish the nations, 
and destroy all of those that would plot evil. This is actually something we have to take very seriously in our own way of thinking, in our own worldview. In Proverbs 17, in verse 15, it says, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both like an abomination to the Lord. Let that sit in for a second. Those that justify wickedness are an abomination to the Lord. And those that would condemn righteousness are an abomination to the Lord. You don't find too often that something is an abomination to God. But what we see is that actually denying justice is an abomination to God. Because that's what was described there. And so David is praying that God would spare no one who treacherously plots evil. And to keep it across the board, all nations that plot evil, he's saying punish them. This is a prayer that David prays for God to punish wickedness. Is that relevant for us to ask for God to punish wickedness? Yes. Of course it is. He moves from here in this prayer for deliverance into a prayer of destruction. Before he gets into the prayer of destruction, he describes what they are like. And it's not flattering. In verse 6, he says, Each evening they come back howling like dogs, prowling like the city. Think of the imagery here and how that imagery plays out in how we understand what he's saying in verse 7. So he says that they come back howling like dogs, roaming the city. He says, there they are bellowing with their mouths, with swords in their lips, for who they think will hear us. So the wickedness of their mouths is the howling like dogs, bellowing with their mouth, as you see in the ESV. In the NSAB, it says they belch forth with their mouth. Swords are in their lips. So what we see here is a very vivid language of sins of the mouth. They are sins of the mouth. This is the description of a person that uses their mouth for wickedness. Notice the descriptions of how they use their mouths is very loud and boisterous. If you walk through my neighborhood in, in the morning, and I know this from experience, if I make a certain noise in front of one of the houses, the dogs start barking like crazy. And you can probably hear them several houses away. During the summer, I sleep with my window open, and the neighbor down the street uh, has one of those dogs that likes to bark all night. I can hear it in my bedroom with the fan on. So what I'm, what I'm trying to say is a howl, the imagery of a howling animal is not something that's quiet. 
It's something that's loud. It's something that's heard through the entire city. It's something that people know. And so this description here is very interesting because those that are described as howling like dogs that are prowling through the city, look what it says in verse 7. Who will hear us? So the picture is this, is they, on their part, spewing, or as it says in the NSAB, belching out their words and their destructive words. They're thinking no one sees what we're doing, but David's actually describing them, in a, they're like howling dogs in a city. It's an incredible description of them because it quite just very vividly paints the picture and the power of words. We go from these assassins to now speaking sins. Just a real quick jump from that to Now the focus is not on the fact that they wanted to kill him, but now that they speak. How do you go from so quickly in a psalm where the focus is deliver me, they want to kill me, now to the focus on someone's mouth? But it just does it seamlessly in the text of Scripture. It speaks of a very dangerous person. The imagery of a howling dog is a fearsome thing. We have protection. I don't worry about a coyote coming into my house. If you go back to the ancient Near East, howling dogs coming through a city would be a frightening thing. So we see the danger of them. We see the the volume of them, that they are boisterous, and yet they're thinking, who hears me? If If I had to put this, sum it up, I think we see the power of words and what words do when used of others against others. I think that that's what the picture is here. If you had to just put it in language that's common to uh, us, we would say gossips are destructive. And that's what's described in many ways here. Yes, it's, they're, they're trying to kill him, and we're going to see there's more to it than just that, but we have to see this for what it is. And there's a couple things I want to point out to the text out of the, that come out of the text here is these powers and the, uh, and the destructive nature of the mouth actually, by what they do, they make themselves known to others. Let's just say, if I apply this to the, the idea of what we say about others, guess what happens? It's not a secret. Others know. They make themselves known. And second, the scriptures, 
We might look at David's experience, and it is David's experience and David's words, but yet it's God's word through the pen of David. Those with sins of the mouth are described in the worst possible light that you could be described in. They're described in the worst possible light. And third, as we wrestle with this, do we not sometimes have a tendency to do the same? How easy it is to slip into using our tongues for destruction rather than what? Building up. It's interesting how often Paul addresses this situation in all of the churches. Over and over again. So it's good that we take a a sober look at what Scripture says about the tongue and the mouth. And so let us be warned by what we see here. Never, never allow it to be said amongst ourselves. Because we see how destructive it is. And here's the sobering reality for us, is the Lord hears. Look at verse 8. But you, O Lord, laugh at them. You hold all the nations in derision. Which is very much like Psalm 2.4. Is that the Lord laughs. And so while there are those that are plotting, in our context, against David, to kill David, to go after the Lord's anointed, to disrupt the plan of God... The Lord looks at them and laughs. They think that they're quiet. They're asking, who hears me? And the Lord is laughing about it. So it's interesting that as you read this here, you see two things. Others know. David knew. But God knows. And that's the most important thing to keep in mind. Now we see, when under the persecution of the tongue, where David is under persecution of the tongue, what we end up finding is that he finds comfort in this. And his comfort isn't from them stopping. His comfort isn't from them not speaking ill of him. His comfort comes from the Lord. Notice what he begins to say in verse 9. Oh, my strength. David recognizes his own weakness, but finds strength in the Lord. He says, I will watch for you, for you, O God, are my fortress. It's an amazing escape plan that David had in the situation. He puts again that that dummy in the bed with the goat's hair on it, and he sneaks out the window, and that's a good way to sneak out. He gets away. But he doesn't take comfort in his own devices. He doesn't take comfort in his ability to escape those that were trying to kill him. He takes comfort and finds his fortress is God. God was his fortress. God was his comfort. He goes on to say, my God in his steadfast love will meet me. God will look, let me look in triumph on my enemies. So not only does he say God is his stronghold, that that is his fortress, that God is his strength, but he says God will vindicate me. Vindication will come. He says God will let me look triumphantly on my foes. 
Let me say this, what a comfort this is that one day all truths will be known and laid bare. God will vindicate His own. All the slander that God's people have faced over the years from wicked people, the Lord will lay that bare one day. And you can take great comfort in that, that while now you might face slander, there comes a day where the Lord will reveal all things. And we even see that Scripture tells us that the church will judge the nations. Those persecuted ones will stand with Christ ruling over the nations. Now, David, in part, experienced this in his life, but never perfectly did he. Because later on, David will go through several other controversies that he was innocent of. You think of it when the rest of Saul's family was wiped out. There was people still in Israel saying of David that David planned to kill the rest of Saul's family when that wasn't true. David experiences these slander, this rejection, and people that would reject the truth throughout the rest of his life. But there comes a day where David will experience the truth. But here's the thing about this as we try to relate this. David says he was innocent. David was innocent. So if we find ourselves on the other end of a lashing, what does that mean we need to make sure we are innocent of sin ourselves? Not playing a part in it. Verse 4 again, he says, For no fault of mine they run and make ready. It's one thing to face persecution because you kept poking. It's one thing to face persecution because you were sinning against someone else. Uh, It's another thing to be innocent and receive it. And that's what David is speaking of here. And while David never in his whole entire life is able to escape sharp swords of tongues that come after him, he's nonetheless able to find comfort in the Lord. And so you take comfort in this too, that you can find comfort in the Lord when people are coming after you. And here's how. Here's where we find our greater comfort, is David's greater son actually experienced it and was truly innocent. What do I mean? Well, think of Isaiah 53 in verse 7. Where we read this, he, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. The greater son of David faced sneering and faced the jeers of people coming at him far more than David ever did, and yet the greater son of David was perfectly innocent, whereas David could never say he was perfectly innocent. 
You think of what we read of the Lord Jesus Christ. It says this in 1 Peter chapter 2, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. Well, what's his steps? Here's an example for this purpose. That's what the so that means. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. That's that innocent part. Though I'm innocent, they come after me for no fault of my own. Verse 23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but now have been returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Was slandered, but opened not his mouth. When reviled, did not revile in return. You know, when you find yourself on the other end, it's usually fight fire with fire. You push me, I'll push you back harder. But our example is actually trusting in the Lord, isn't it? That's what we read in the text. Is to trust in the Lord. Now David does pray that the Lord would make an example of them. He prays that he would do something with them in verse 11. Notice what the example is. It's actually quite harsh. He says, kill them not. You might think, oh, David's being being kind. David's being gracious. No, not at all. Look what he says. He says, kill them not, lest my people forget Make them totter by your power and bring them down, O Lord, our shield. In other words, keep them alive so that they may be paraded and everyone may be reminded of what happens when you slander God's anointed one. Keep them alive so they will bear a testimony by their life of what happens when you cross the Lord. That's what he prays for. He prays that the Lord would bring them down as a testimony to David's righteousness and that the Lord is vindicating him. It's amazing that when you see the greater son of David and those that had to witness his resurrection... And then live before people knowing that Christ was vindicated. You begin to see, even though it is certainly persecution, the the particular sin is described again of sins of the mouth. Look at verse 12. For the sin of their mouths 
the words of their lips. Let them be trapped in their pride. For the cursing and lies that they utter, consume them in wrath, consume them till they are no more, that they may know that God rules over Jacob to the ends of the earth. What's interesting in the context of, of this is Saul, in one of his mad fits, wanted to kill David just prior to him sending assassins out to kill David. He's in one of his mad fits, and Saul's son, Jonathan, talks him down. And this is what Saul says. And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. What does Saul do? He takes out an oath in the name of Yahweh that he will not kill David. And then what does he do in the next several verses? He tries to kill David, breaking his oath before God. The words of his mouth are the wickedness. I will do this before God. And then he does the opposite. So you have another slight perception of the sins and the wickedness of the mouth is how seriously does God take it when our word is given, but then we take it back. Because that's exactly what Saul does here. He says, for this, and David describes it as, for the sin of their mouths, the words of their lips. Saul takes an oath out in the name of God. I love what the confession says about oaths. It captures how seriously they are before God. It says, The name of God only is that by which men ought to swear, and therein it is to be used with all holy fear and reverence. Therefore, to swear vainly, or rashly by that glorious and dreadful name, or to swear at all by any other thing, is sinful and to be abhorred. How, how seriously do we take our word and the weight of our word? Does our, weight, our word carry weight? It's the sin of the mouth that's being described here. And so using our mouth wrongly is sinful. You, just a few verses, I'll just run through them. Exodus 23.1, You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You go into... The New Testament, you see a repeating of the same things, but Paul says it in his way. In Ephesians 4.29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. That's the negative. Don't let corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. 
You think about what James says. And I think we'll feel the weight of James. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religious is wor- religion is worthless. What does God tell us about the tongue? Now notice we see in verses 12 and 13 what is the root of this. It says, For sin of their mouths, the words of their lips, let them be trapped in their what? In their pride. That seems to be the root of a wicked mouth. It's pride. Why is pride the root of a wicked mouth? Why is pride the root of one that destroys the character of another? That's what's being referenced here. Ultimately, I think they think it's their their right to do it. It's their duty to do it. They have an elevated, inflated view of themselves. They think only of themselves. And it makes them feel even more elevated to destroy others. They have an overwhelming sense of their own greatness that is only boosted by tearing down others. Do you know that this is actually addicting? To fall into that? Once it starts, Pandora's box is opened. Proverbs 18, verse 8 says this, The words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of the body. You ever have that special snack that you know that as soon as you have one, you're going to finish the bag? That's what gossip's like. That's what the words of a whisperer are like. That's what sins of the mouth are like. It's like having a taste, and then once you get that taste, it's over. I think what that means, and and it fits the imagery of Psalm 59, is that they actually look for opportunities to tear down others. In verses 14 and 15, it says this, Each evening they come back, howling like dogs and prowling about the city. They wander about for food and growl if they do not get their fill. Never get enough of it. They're searching for those opportunities to tear down. And so... David prays, first, make an example of them as a testimony to my own righteousness. But then in verse 13, he says, finish them off. He says this, consume them in wrath, consume them till they are no more. 
that they may know that God rules over Jacob to the ends of the earth. He prays that justice will be done. So put this in perspective. Sins of the mouth create an injustice. And if they create an injustice, the psalmist is praying that justice be done. And the punishment that is to be meted out for sins of the mouth is to be wiped out. That's incredible. Because how that tongue is like a spark that sets a whole entire forest ablaze, as James says. But yet, isn't it an acceptable sin in the church? It's amazing that actually God's word calls for them to be consumed in wrath. To be consumed until they are no more. In fact, in in Titus, we're told the one that stirs up division is to be warned once, then warned twice, and then have nothing to do with them. I think we have to feel the weight of this. Understand the serious nature of it ourselves. Well, after David prays this, in contrast to those that are howling like dogs, as he says in verse 14, he goes on to verse 16 and we see a comparison or a contrast. Is the person that has the spewing of the mouth, do you think that they have joy and peace and contentment in their life? No, they're feeding on tearing down others so that they might get a piece of contentment. I'm not trying to play amateur psychologist in making that observation. That's just the way it is. But look at the contrast to David. He's the one that's receiving the slander, but what does he say? But I... He's contrasting himself with them. They do this, but he says, but I, I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning, for you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. And then he says it again, oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you, for you, O God, are my fortress The God who shows me steadfast love, he says this as he's slandered and as assassins are trying to kill him. I'll sing. You slander, I'll sing. You try to kill, I will sing. I will sing to the Lord who has protected me and has been my refuge. He does this joyfully despite people hating him, despite his innocence. He is confident of the Lord's presence in his life. What an amazing testimony of God's grace in David's life. But again, we we have to recognize that David was never without sin. 
the one that could truly say this is the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only one that could ever say, they persecute me for sins not of my own. And so when we do face that, we have a great advocate in the Lord Jesus Christ that has experienced it, but experienced it to the fullest, because when we experience it, again, we're never without sin. There might be situations where we don't deserve something or that we are innocent in it, but we're still sinful people. Christ is the only one who can say that for no sins of my own. And there's great comfort that we do see here is that the Lord will avenge his people. He will laugh at those that believe they can disrupt his people and his plan. And the Lord is sovereign over all nations. And all nations will fill it. And you can take great comfort in that. That's how you can sing with joy, is you know that the Lord one day will expose and make all wrongs right. With a perfect justice. And whereas we may hear the slander of the tongue we will hear from the Father, well done, my good and faithful servant, because of Christ. Such great comfort in that. But then also, let us examine our own lives and our own conduct and our own conversations that we don't fall into that temptation of ever using our mouth for sins. And let us be thankful that when we do examine that, we have one that has never used his mouth for sin that offers us forgiveness. And praise God for the Lord Jesus that in him we have forgiveness for our own times of sin in our mouth. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus and the salvation that we have in him. We see such grace just dripping from the pages of your word that provide us comfort, that give us peace and give us even joy. Father, may we remember these words if we ever face slander ourselves and may we be comforted by them. And we pray that by your grace we would Never be the slanderer, but may we take the example of Christ and when reviled, not revile in return, but to continue entrusting ourselves to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.